The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Addiction Podcast. My name is Joni Siegel, and I'm the host for this podcast. My husband, Steve Siegel, is the producer of the podcast. If you have a story you would like to share with us, please reach out. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com. Just a reminder to please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a good review. Also, give us a good review on YouTube. Give us a thumbs up on our videos. The reason we ask you to do that is not just because we think we're so great, but we are trying to offer a message of hope and help for people suffering from addiction. And lots of times they kind of feel alone. So we feel like if they can find our podcast, they'll get some of those messages of hope. So if you could do that, that would be great. Today's episode is episode number 306, and it's an interview with a gentleman named Jason Yamas. Jason has a story like none we've ever shared before. He is a fiction and nonfiction writer making his prose debut as author of Tweaker World, a memoir. Now, I didn't realize, but tweaker means a person addicted to methamphetamine. That's a slang definition. After Jason's world fell apart in Los Angeles, he moved to Berkeley for a fresh start with his kid brother. Just one problem. His long-closeted Adderall addiction had exploded into an out-of-control crystal meth binge. Within weeks, Jason plunged into the sprawling party-and-play subculture of the Bay Area's gay community. It is a wildly decadent scene of drugs, group sex, and criminals, and yet it is also filled with surprising characters, people who continually subverted Jason's own presumptions of the stereotypical tweaker. Soon, Jason became a dealer on the pretense of researching this tweaker world for a project that would carry him, like a life raft, back to the shores of normal life. With painful honesty, Jason has crafted a landmark narrative that is not just a personal account of addiction, but a portrait of a vulnerable, largely undocumented community of people who, for many reasons, have been marginalized to the point of invisibility. Let's talk to Jason Yamas. Jason Yamas, thank you so much for being willing to talk to us today. Your story is, I think, unique from any other story that we've had. So I'm very excited to talk to you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Awesome. Tell us, where did you grow up? Just a little bit about your background. Like, you know, you mentioned in your bio Adderall. How did that come about? Like, what was your life like when you were a kid? When I was, I grew up outside of Philadelphia in a town called Chadsford, Pennsylvania. My family was in the restaurant and hotel business. And I was one of those kids who worked after school and on the weekends, cleaning hotel rooms. I was... Uh, I was very involved with my family's business. Uh, I had a very boring middle-class upbringing, uh, you know, a white boy from the suburbs. And uh, for the most part, it was very innocent. You know, I never dabbled with drugs or even alcohol really besides marijuana uh, in, you know, in high school. Uh, so that was not even in my purview. Even, even going to college, I, I studied acting at NYU and while I would hear of other people who were studying more uh, laborious type studies, uh, participating in Adderall and, and those types of study drugs mm -hmm. back, back in the college years when they become popular, 
it was never really on my radar because I didn't I didn't need it to stay up. I wasn't writing papers, you know. I was I was rehearsing scenes, and uh, so it really didn't hit me until my twenties when I was producing media and films and finding myself able to do way more things if I was able to be on some sort of stimulant. Uh, I I was dabbling with with different kinds of stimulants, but Adderall certainly was the one that gave me the most gusto and the most wherewithal, or at least at the beginning it does, to give you the, the impression that you're limitless that, uh, mm. that it holds no bounds uh, to what you can accomplish. And it made me more productive. It made me more confident. Uh, so, Was it prescribed, Jason? Or just you just bought it off the street or from friends? or? So not at first. Uh, at first, it was just I would be on set. There would be somebody there uh, that had a, a, a 10 milligram Adderall. And they knew we were doing a late night shoot. And they would offer it to me. And, mm-hmm. uh, and then of course, you know, once I knew that that was an option, I'd go back to them and, you know, could I get two of them? And then once I real, once the addiction really took hold and, uh, I started pursuing any avenue I could to get mm-hmm. it, you know, I went mm-hmm. to the doctor, which I don't think, sadly, I don't think is, is uncommon, uh, and created a story, you know, Googled, how do I get Adderall from a doctor? Uh, and knew all the buzzwords to say and how to ask for it and and how to lie, uh, uh, you know, for it. Uh, so I did end up getting a, a prescription that would supplement uh, uh, the person I was getting it from. And then you, you get creative. You find other dealers yeah. uh, as, as you go on. Yeah. Now, you didn't stick with Adderall, though, right? You transitioned at some point. How did that come I, about? I did. Uh, I transitioned into crystal meth. Uh, luckily my, my meth addiction did not last years like it, like it can and does for many. Uh, I was lucky in that respect, but, uh, how did it, how did it transition? Well, I ran out of Adderall and uh, I had, I had hit a point where I was taking up to 120 milligrams a day, which of Adderall, which, you know, they only prescribe, I believe at most uh, don't quote me on this, but I, I think, you know, 40 or 50 at most. Uh, wow. Usually it's 10 to 30 milligrams. So I was I was taking at minimum four times the amount I should have. And I wasn't sleeping. Uh, I was not able to be an attentive partner to my boyfriend at the time. Uh, and because of that, I had told myself, you know, maybe I was lying to my, I probably was lying to myself, but I had told myself I was going to quit the Adderall. Uh, we had had a, a tragedy in, in my partner's family and I intended to quit it. Uh, and, uh, but I had to get through a few intensive work days with a very intense boss that I had. And I had no more Adderall to get through those days before I was going to have a week off when I could quit cold turkey and, 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 you know, expect the come down that was, that was on its way. And it was inevitable. Um, so I had, I had read an article that was floating around social media and it argued, it was written by a pediatrician, the article, and it was arguing how crystal meth and Adderall were essentially chemically the same drug. Right. A few molecular differences. I'm not and, a chemist, and, the, but... and the article was sort of to dissuade people from putting children on Adderall, but it yes. meant something different to you. Well, that's how an addict 
that's how an addict thinks. An addict yeah. will will contort facts and perception to meet their needs. And, and that's ex- and that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what an addict will do. Uh, so yes, I went out and bought crystal meth. And uh, as I say in this book, I've written about it. I finding meth as a straight person may might be difficult. Uh, as a gay person, especially a gay person on the West Coast of, of America, it's it, it is a click away. You you can go onto a uh, a dating app or more realistically a hookup app uh, and find crystal meth in a heartbeat. So, so it wasn't difficult. I, I'm sorry. So in in the gay community, it was way easier to access crystal meth, as far as you know, from like straight people. That, there's yes. something wrong with that, Jason. There's something I like. Okay, there be quiet now. There, there was okay. It, it sounds quiet. as though. Okay, I'm going to digress just for a second. Like Please. we know that pharmaceutical companies targeted lower income blue collar workers in places like West Virginia with oxycotton. We know that Purdue and other pharmaceutical companies did that. So. I'm wondering, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but this makes me wonder if there's any sort of targeting going on there. Probably. Your, your thought? Uh, yeah. uh, yes, uh, probably. I would, uh, and I mean, I could roll with the conspiracy theories into how crack became uh, an epidemic in the 80s as well, and how that was targeted with the help of of the CIA. Uh, but, you know, you can watch the, the show Snowfall on FX for, for that story. But okay. yes, I do believe, I do believe that uh, there is probably some targeting going on. Fentanyl is the single deadliest drug threat our nation has ever encountered, and fentanyl is everywhere, from large metropolitan areas to rural America. No community is safe from this poison. Steered Straight, a nonprofit drug education group based in Tennessee, is on a mission to educate students, teachers, parents, and communities on the dangers of fentanyl through their free fentanyl fake and fatal online course. This course was created for middle and high school students as well as teachers and parents. You can find it at www.courses.steeredstraight.org. We must take every opportunity to spread the word to prevent fentanyl-related overdose deaths and poisonings from claiming scores of American lives every day. Once again, that's www.courses.steeredstraight.org for a free course on fentanyl. In his 10 years as a top draft pick and starting center for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, Randy Grimes had to play through pain or lose his job. This led to an opioid addiction, and eventually he lost nearly everything. But Randy beat the addiction then founded Pro Athletes in Recovery, and now details his story in his riveting book, Off Center, a memoir of addiction, recovery, and redemption in professional football, with the foreword by iconic player and coach Mike Ditka. We know Randy's story and highly recommend Off Center. It will inspire you to create your own comeback, available at Amazon and anywhere books are sold. But what people don't realize is that crystal meth is it 
at most prevalent in the gay community. We, you know, everybody's watched Breaking Bad and yeah. we saw how they cook it and how they move it around. But when you saw people doing it, it was just the kind of stereotypical tweaker, the the toothless person, you know, the, the bump, the country bumpkin, you know, the, you picture these backwoods type folk uh, smoking crystal meth and, and meth face and, and all of these uh, kind of viral images that, that we've seen over the years. But what most people don't know, and I think where your uh, shock is coming from, especially straight people don't know, and a lot of gay people don't know, um, is that it is so popular among gay men in particular, and it is spreading it to other sects of the uh, gay community. It, it, because it- I was just gonna say, meth, why? Why do you think that yeah. is? Well, I, I can tell you exactly why it is. Uh, so crystal meth, uh, it, it's not just being done for the sake of getting high. It's, it's being done in conjunction with dangerous sexual habits. Uh... Crystal meth completely eradicates inhibitions, it uh, it allows people to engage in some of their darker and deeper fantasies, sexual fantasies. And yeah. a lot of that, uh, where that becomes uh, attractive to a, a gay person is usually somebody that is suffering the crisis of shame. Yeah. Uh, shame is a very common characteristic in the gay community, uh, being that you know it's only been in the past decade or so that that queer people have really begun to see mainstream rights. Uh, you know, first with with DOMA, what was that, 2013? You know, don't ask, don't tell being repealed, and only just now seeing folks like Pete Buttigieg and in the cabinet and and different uh, queer politicians rise to it, it in their in the ranks but before that you know and still so many queer people were made to fear to feel other made to made to uh were tormented in many ways whether by peers or family that didn't accept them and that manifests that manifests into uh, an immense amount of grief and shame and that then can manifest into internalized homophobia, yeah. where we don't believe that normal, healthy sexual intercourse is something that we can engage in without feeling gross. Right. Uh, and crystal meth allows us to do to go there. I, yeah, I get it. I, I never, like I said before we started, I've, I've never, we haven't had someone like yourself who is a part of the gay community or, if, or if we have, they haven't said that and sure. who has a perspective from it. And I think it's important for people to hear because people need to know that, you know, if we've got families who are listening, who have a loved one who is gay and, you know, also addicted, there's, this is, 
this is really good information, I think, to share. I'm glad you wrote your book as well, and we will talk more about your book. Okay, but so you're in San Francisco now, right? Berkeley, right? I No, I'm actually in Los Angeles now. No, no, no. I don't mean now. I mean part, part of your me. story. In you the, were, in, yes, yes. At the, the beginning of my story, I was, I, in, I was living in Berkeley. Okay, in the, good. The I, I reverted to the <laughs> present tense. <laughs> That's okay. The book is written in present tense. So I understand okay. how you would do that. There you go. Okay, so y- you must have seen then as um, a tweaker that there was perhaps a market in the community you were involved in? For sure. Uh, Yes. And, you know, it goes, it goes deeper into, so crystal meth really will unveil some of our um, more maudlin and, uh, and disgraceful uh, characteristics that we that, that we may have in within us and uh and it brought out my inner capitalist i have to, uh, somehow I, I have to admit i ended up uh seeing uh an opportunity um to be able to make money from my addiction and more than i by the way i did not end up making money in the end as of most of course not because you usually you use it right you use it up yeah. yeah use it or lose it and yeah. i lost Um, and so, yeah, I did, I saw, I saw an opportunity to become a dealer within the community and I, uh, but it was even less about making money and more about feeling important and feeling powerful and not wanting to, to admit that I was just some lowly addict, you know, who was going to end up homeless or, or dead on the street. You know, I deluded myself into believing that my addiction to crystal meth was virtuous. You are listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information on the podcast or to reach out if you have a story you would like to share with us, go to our Facebook page by the same name, or you can email us at theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com or go to our website, theaddictionpodcast.com, or call us at 727-314-7080. And please remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review. Sometimes, the hardest thing about getting someone into recovery is getting them to agree to treatment. Bobby Newman, a certified drug counselor with 30 years experience and an over 85% success rate as an interventionist, has created a series of 12 videos that you can use right now to learn every step to get your loved one to agree to treatment. Call 866-989-4499 today and say the word podcast to get a 10% discount or go to newmaninterventions.com and type in the word podcast for a 10% discount. This service comes with a free one-hour consultation with Bobby. Well, that, had, that it had purpose, that I could not only become a dealer, I could be the best dealer. I could be the first nonviolent dealer. I could change how business is done. I could find homeless people that were, that were on the street addicted to meth and turn them into dealers and give them an opportunity to, to, to rise up and be able to, to you know, once again, have their own 
uh, residence again. I mean, just like you know, this this deluded Mother Teresa complex that, that I that I found my way into. I don't think that that's necessarily the typical trajectory for every queer meth addict, but it was mine. Fascinating, and it obviously worked for you for a while, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Uh, worked uh, can, yeah. yeah. It, it was. It, it. I admit that it was um, fun for a very little bit of time, and and then of course the inevitable comes. You make enemies. Uh, people uh, don't like that you're stealing their livelihood. Who is this? Who's this boy with an NYU degree? You know, walking into our territory and taking our clients and and taking our business away from us. So I had those nemesis, nemeses. Uh, I also at one point found out that there was a DEA informant that had been planted in my organization. Mm. That that sent me. And then, of course, you continue to, with as busy as I was and working 22 hours a day, sleeping maybe four hours a week, the sleep deprivation plus all of the chemicals Plus all of the added stress, I ended up in a nearly irreversible psychosis. It's wow. uh, almost a miracle that I'm sitting here today and able to recount it because uh, I, I didn't know if I was coming back from it. To be and honest. how is that? How did you? How did you come back from it? That's a good question. I well, they put me on Risperdal at first, uh, just to be able to ground me. And Risperdal is a pharmaceutical that's given to uh, often to people with schizophrenia and other uh, psychosis type disorders. Were you in a a mental hospital at that point? uh, I was not in a mental hospital at that. I was in a rehab facility and the psychiatrist was was, uh, prescribing me that for a few weeks just to get me back because all I wanted to do was return to the world. Even when I was at rehab at the very end, uh, I could not give up this world that I had, that I believed was now my own. Um, so that, that was the very first thing was, was that pharmaceutical, which thank God for that, because it gave me enough wherewithal to not get on a plane and go back to San Francisco and try to do it all again, but to return back to Pennsylvania, where I'm from and, and to, nearer to my family, um, but the answer, how did I get out of it? Uh, it? It's an old adage, but people, places, and things. I'm sure you've heard that. People, mm. places, and things. You stay away from the people, the places, and the things that constituted your addiction. Yep. I could not go back to San Francisco. No. Could I now? Maybe Maybe I'll go back. A visit. I'll visit. Um, but I had to get away from the, the, the people. And it's not easy because when you're so deep in that addiction, and this is... This has got to be uh, something that that I, not this is something not enough people mention when when getting into the recovery piece of their journey is that you want so desperately to take the people with you, the people that you knew in your addiction, because you have a trauma bond with them that is incomparable to anything else. No one on the other side, as I call it. The, the 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 sober side 
they don't really know. They don't really know what your experience was. Even if you go into the rooms, you know, AA, NA, CMA, smart recovery, whatever that is, uh, whatever you choose to do. Uh, even if you go in those rooms, people have their own stories, but that was their world. You want people from your world. So it was very difficult for me. And I, in fact, in fact, I, I ended up in a relationship, if you could call that, with an individual who had been in meth addiction with me, but he had also been there for 12 years prior to me. And we were together for the first few months of our sobriety. And it just became very apparent. I was able to start making the transition back to normality, going to see comedy, reading books, listening to podcasts, just the nor the normal things that you disconnect from when you're in your addiction. And he just couldn't. He couldn't uh. disconnect from the rage. He could, you know, he was smashing holes in walls still. He was breaking my phone. The, the drugs weren't there, but the abuse yeah. uh, because of the inner torment that he had not begun to heal and, and his went so much deeper. So as much as I wanted to hold on to him as a vehicle to hold on to that world so I could feel understood in yep. recovery, yep. I had to let it go. So yep. you really do. You have to detach from the people, places, and things. And it's really about time. Yep. You have to, so many people, uh, when I, you know, since, since my, the publication of my book was announced, I've had so many people reach out to me about their gay queer friend who's in meth addiction. And, and some of them I've been able to, to guide, uh, into rehab. And when I talk to them, they're like, Oh no, 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 I'm doing outpatient. You know, I don't want to go to inpatient rehab. And I'm like, go to inpatient rehab. Don't even do the 30 day, do the 60 day. Do they have a 90 day? Do the 90 day. And they yeah. think that that's insane. They got to get yeah. back to the normal life, but no, get away from yeah. it. As for get as away from as that can. quote unquote normal life. Jason, how long have you been clean and sober? About six and a half years. It'll wow. be seven in March. Well done. Very well Thank done you. on that. Thank I you. Know that it's, it's not so much easy. Nicer. Yeah, I know. Right. Yeah. Um, it's not, yeah, it's not, it's and, not easy, but, but, um, it is, it is so worth it. The, the, the highs are, uh, <laughs> they last longer. Actually. Way higher, way better. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you have tools to handle the lows when they come. Um, Absolutely. you, you touched on something. There was something that you touched on that I, well, I lost it, but that's okay. okay. People listening to the podcast, make sure you listen to every single word that Jason said because he touched on so many, so many. <laughs> Sorry, points. I talk so fast. Sorry it's okay. It's okay. So tell us about the book. When did you start writing it? And tell us about it. What led you to do that? Well, I had to do it. I, um, so I was a documentary filmmaker, producer. Uh, I had studied acting. I, I've always wanted to be a filmmaker. So even when I was in my addiction and I, when I was in San Francisco from when I was just a user to when I was running the whole crystal meth market for the gay community, that entire time I was telling myself that I was researching a film I was going to write about this world, which is very much just a bullshit justification that an addict, you know, I, I, I was, I was 
clinching onto to the identity that I knew for myself as an artist and seeing, okay, well, how can I contort that identity to match this new foray into, into this world? And, and that's the bullshit I invented. Um, now, the fact that I'm actually following through with it is, is a different beast. Uh, yeah. it's, not, it's not really what I, what I was researching. It, is, it has more perspective. Uh, you know, it, the, the, book that, or the book or movie that I thought I was, I was making by living it in San Francisco was a full-on glorification of the world. Uh, I hope that the book is read. I don't, I don't, tr- I don't, write it as a cautionary tale, but I hope that it's received as one. Um, so, but uh, when did I start writing it? Uh, I got clean in 2017 and then I spent about a year being tormented in my nightmares every night, reliving different scenes, different, different characters, different images from the psychosis, auditory hallucinations. Wow. I, it would come back to me in dreams. Uh, and it was just, it was too much to handle. Yeah. It was so expansive that I had no idea how to get it out of me. And I'm not a trained writer. I, I never, uh, I have written screenplays. I've written plays. I know dialogue and action. I don't, I didn't, I didn't at that time know prose. Right. Uh, so I sat with a friend who is a writer and said, hey, if I just write everything that happened to me, do you think you could make it into a book? And she said, yeah, get started. Write it all down. But by the time I did it, and I wrote, I outlined, firstly, I just outlined everything. And that was probably 30 pages uh, of uh, events. Um, I wrote down everybody's name that I could remember. It was 115 different characters. Um, And then he wasn't available after all to write the book. So I said, well, I'm just going to try. We'll see, see what even comes out. And uh, I, I made myself sit down every single day for eight to 10 hours in my burgundy chair in Philadelphia and just, you know, as much as I could get out, even if it didn't make sense. And it's very much not what is in this book now. Show the cover again. It's Tweaker World, everybody. Yeah, it's called Tweaker World. I mean, I'll put a picture up too, but there you go. Okay. Yeah, thank you. Um, That's good discipline. Eight hours every day writing. That's pretty good. It's honestly what it took. Uh, it really does. It really does take discipline. When people say, you know, I want to write a book. I want to write a book. I just literally just sit down and just start writing. You don't have to. It doesn't need to be good. It doesn't need to be good at first. And it won't. But if you don't have training like me, it will not be good. It will be incoherent. The people I sent it to at first were like, oh, I don't know if this is a book. <laughs> like, it might, be, it might find its way to being a screenplay. And, uh, and really... Uh, then the process, it, my, my first draft was 300,000 words, which oh, wow. I don't even think uh, there's a Winston Churchill biography that's that long. Um, <laughs> uh, just ridiculous. I mean, talk about uh, uh, the narcissism of it all. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, we whittled it down. The, the book now is 90,000 words, which is a normal book size. And um, But, the, yeah, so what I say to people that want to write a book about their story is – just write it the fuck down, <laughs> write yeah. it down. Yeah. And then you go back in and you texture it and you dig deeper. You say, okay, well, this feels like the truth, but what's the deeper truth? What's the polygraph truth of this moment? Mm-hmm. And what, what, what did this room smell like? What did this, and you just dig deeper into your memory and fill it in. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, you know, then cut away 
it's that's a whole process and it yep. took many years it took many years to to get it where it is now are you looking to write a screenplay play because it sure sounds like it'd be a really good screenplay jason uh yes yeah, so i there's so much story here that i don't think we could do it in a film uh and i will say that i am working with a wonderful tv producer at the very early stages right now wow. of development i'm not sure when this podcast will come out uh, but maybe we'll have more news about it. January twelfth. Well, January twelfth. Okay. Yeah, probably won't have more news about it. Then. Okay, <laughs> but but share your will, news but, with but us, would you? Please I, keep I us posted we'll because, updated. you know, I will mention it. I will talk about it. I want you know, I think that you know you being you writing the book, and by the way, people can you can get it on Amazon. It's called Tweaker World by J- yes. Jason Yamas, just like it sounds. Y A M A S. Um, I know what it was that you said that you kind of, you were talking about the partner that you could not stay with. And that is that he didn't get to the underlying cause. And we've said so many times, and I think you will relate to this so many times that the drugs are the solution. They're not the problem. And there's some underlying something there that for which drugs become a solution. And it sounded like what you were talking about. He never got to whatever the problem was underlying. Yeah. And I, I would like to actually to talk more about him because he's a, a wonderful uh, example of the painful struggle that recovery really can be for most people. Yeah. My story is unique in there. And I'm so grateful that I had have such an incredible assemblage of friends and family members that have been there for me and such an incredible support system. He did not. He does Mm -hmm. not. He is currently in rehab. Again, this is I think his ninth time in rehab since we both got clean around the same time. Uh, And I've done everything I can to try to support him in getting there. Uh, but you know, when I see him and he gets clean again, he gets a boyfriend uh, immediately and he goes to Facebook and, and seeks validation and it's false. You know, mm. it's, it's the, the constant validation that you can utilize social media for. And we all do it. Non-addicts do it in yep. non-drug addicts, I should say, do it in, in, in other micro dosing kind of ways. Yeah. Um, but us addicts will seek that validation as a remedy and mm-hmm. it is a hundred percent not the not addressing the underlying cause right. it's it's just it's just a feel good it's just another high it's another hit whether it's meth or or a a, a like on facebook um yep. it, it it produces the same endorphins interesting Jason, you're a rock star. I want to, you have to keep me posted about the television series because your whole story is like the breaking bad of the gay community in Berkeley. Kind of, (laughs) sort of, you know? Yeah. And then you have whatever the drug cartels are in that community wanting to then, you know, basically put you out of business. So it's, it's, you, you got some drama there. I want you to keep me, you definitely keep us posted about that. Uh, no doubt. And with the TV series, we're not just going to tell my story. We're, we're aiming to tell many other types of ad- meth addicts stories as well. And how did, how did they all end up here and what's their journey? So uh, like really it. widening the lens with the yep. next adaptation. So um, boy, I like I it. Really... And I think it's very needed. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Jason. Thank you so much for having me. It was really a pleasure. And, uh, you know, there are resources out there for if you do have a friend or family member in meth addiction, 
the resources are growing day by day. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's a wonderful book uh, called um, Men, uh, Lust and Meth or something, Dave, Dave, Dr. David Fawcett. That was an incredible resource for me. Um, and Brad Lamb uh, at Breathe Life Healing Centers. He has but I think one in New York and one in LA. Uh, he's an incredible resource as well. So, what was the, what was uh, the name of Brad's? Um, Brad faci- Brad's facility is Breathe Life Healing Centers. Breathe Life. And what was the name of David's book? Men, Meth, and Lust. Something. Something. Those three mm-hmm. words. I can't remember the order. But okay. In, an incredible, comprehensive a clinical uh, understanding of the crystal meth epidemic in the gay community. Cool. Thank you, Jason. Thank you so much. You're the bomb. Oh, I appreciate that. Keep going. Appreciate it. Appreciate you. Appreciate what you've been doing. Thank you for listening. If you know of someone who is gay and also a meth addict, this would be a good podcast for them to listen to. Um, I'm going to... In the notes for this episode, I will put the resources that Jason mentioned. The book by David Fawcett, F-A-W-C-E-T-T, is Lust, Men, and Meth, A Gay Man's Guide to Sex and Recovery. And um, yeah, and the other resource I don't have quite yet, but I will put put it in the notes. Thank you for listening. We'll be back again next year, 2023. That's the year that you or your loved one gets clean and sober. We'll be back. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, reach out to us on Facebook or go to www.theaddictionpodcast.com. Our email is theaddictionpodcast at yahoo.com.